if you're joining us um, today, it's good to see you. If you're visiting, if you're here for the dedication, it's great to see you. Um, you've, you've come when we're in the middle of, uh, well, not in the middle, we're in the second part of, of Revelation, which is um, obviously not the easiest book to look at in the Bible, but we have got a very easy section for you today, so hopefully it won't be too complicated. Um, so when, when we, we sort of adjusted things around so that... Uh, Mabel's dedication wouldn't end up with some kind of um, weird and wonderful passage of scripture that we were all trying to work out. Um, so this morning we're talking about Revelation 14, verses 1 to 5. I'm going to read that. Um, it says this, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with, with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless." So here at the church, in the last two chapters, we've focused on uh, the war that is going on between God's church or God's people and the powers of darkness. That's what chapters 12 and 13 are about. There's a fight, uh, chapters 12 and 13 are about the dragon who's Satan and about the beast from the sea uh, who is the Antichrist and the beast from the earth who is the false prophet. And we've looked at that over the past uh, three weeks. And if you were to pick chapters 12 and 13 out of Revelation, out of context, and look at them, you would think that the, for the church of God's people, it's not a, a great picture, even though there's no victory in there. It seems very hard. You have this enormous red dragon who's Satan, and you have these other two beasts who are very powerful and have great authority. And the, then you have the church, and the church is represented in chapter 12 by a woman. Uh, so you have a woman and this enormous dragon and these beasts and that's the sort of battle that, that we have. And you have to put that into some context for the first people who ever heard Revelation. So these people would have been in church in the first century. They would have heard Revelation read out to them, and they would have heard this going on, this, this battle that was, gonna, that was going on between the church, or going to happen between the church and against the dark forces of Satan. And at the point, they were the few people. They were very, very few. They were in the minority, and uh, the, the battle was hard. They were, lived in an empire, which persecuted them and put them to death. Um, and it was a, a tough fight for them. It was a tough life, being a Christian in the first century. Uh, on top of that, they lived in a, in a world and society which contravened the word of God, everything that happened in that society. And so it was quite hard to be um, a Christian. And so when, when Revelation starts in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus writes letters to seven of the churches. And uh, in those letters, he he talks about how the, the things are stacked up against them. And he finishes each letter with the words, to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes. And that's the focus that we're looking at today. Um, the fight that Christians are in, still exactly the same. It's a fight against the dark forces of this world, against, against the dragon, against Satan, against the beast that's come out of the sea, which is the Antichrist, which when we looked at it is the, in the church, is the work that goes on, uh, in, in, in human rule and in human society, which is against the church and against the false prophet. Uh, and we looked at that last week about how the false prophet brings 
all kinds of false messages, not only into the world, but also into the church as well. And if you pick, as I said, if you pick chapters 12 and 13 out of context, they'd look a little bit bleak for the church. But that's why we have context in the Bible. And that's why these five verses are here, to represent the fact that despite the war, despite the hopeless outlook, despite the struggles that we see a victorious Lord Jesus and we see his church standing strong at the end. This is what this is all about. Every single Christian who started on this journey with Jesus stands there with him at the end. For the first century Christian, the temptation was always to, 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 to leave the church, to give up on Christianity because you were being persecuted even unto death. And so you had that choice, do I carry on following Jesus or am I willing, am I willing to give my life for Jesus? Am I willing to die for Jesus or do I just give up and follow the world? And these words in the start of chapter 14 are intended to, to be an encouragement to, to ensure God's people that if they stand strong, if they overcome, they will stand on Mount Zion with Jesus. They will stand in heaven with him. And that encouragement comes down the centuries to me and you, even now in the 21st century, we still live in a society which is against the church and against God and against God's people. We face the same battles, the same temptations as people faced in the, same, the first century. Don't think we don't. And these first these first five verses of chapter 14 speak the same truth into our lives. If we go back to the, the, the seven letters um, that Jesus wrote to the churches, chapter 2, verse 7 says this, To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God in heaven. In verse 11, it says, He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. He who overcomes will not die eternally. 17b, chapter 2 of uh, Revelation says this, To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. This is a picture of heaven being saved, being with Jesus. Uh, chapter 2, verses 26 to 28, To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give him the morning star. Again, that authority that Christians will receive standing with, with Jesus at the end. Chapter 3, verse 5, is that the, Jesus writes to the church in Sardis. He says this, Him who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. Verse 12 of chapter 3, as he writes to the church in Philadelphia, Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. Verse 21 of chapter 3. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. This is a picture, verses 1 to 5 in chapter 14, this is a picture of what it means to overcome. And that's basically what we're looking at uh, this morning. Some of those things that we, we see in chapter 14, we see uh, as a result of the, what we read there in chapters 2 and 3. So, two points this morning. Firstly, Jesus and his church complete. So, Revelation, draw, if you don't know, Revelation draws pictures for us. We're not, we're not meant to see it as written as a, in, as a chronological order or as a literal 
um, it's drawing pictures for us. And so here's a picture that uh, John sees, and he, he, he draws it for us. So we're meant to see this. There is the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And we saw that. I will write their name, Jesus said. We saw that back in chapter 3. I will write their, my name on them. And so first of all, we see the Lamb. Now, the Lamb in Revelation is identified in Old Testament Scripture as being the Messiah. So uh, in Revelation 5, verse 5, we see uh, this written. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So that's talking about the Messiah. And then it says, verse 6, Then I saw a Lamb looking as if he had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. That's Jesus. So he came to be the all-conquering king, descended from King David and through Judah. And now we see him as the lamb. But why the lamb? Well, the lamb is a picture of... Jesus as the lamb is a picture of God's final act of salvation. Many of you might know the story in Exodus where the, the, the Israelites were saved by putting the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, on their lintels, and that saved them from the angel of death coming. The angel of death came and killed the firstborn of everyone who did not have the blood of the lamb. Uh, and then that was the Passover, and then the Passover was enacted every year by the Jews. And then Jesus came to be the final fulfillment of that. When John first saw Jesus, John the Baptist first saw Jesus, he said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover. So in Revelation 5, he, I saw a lamb, and after Revelation 5, he's the lamb. So in Revelation 14, he's the lamb. We see the lamb, and he's standing on Mount Zion, we see. Now, we've debated this in Calvary over the last six months or so. Uh, people say, is this the real Mount Zion? Is this literally Mount Zion, or is this symbolic of something else and most of this is a picture so for me this is symbolic and it's symbolic because this is a picture of heaven Mount Zion is a picture of heaven we see that in God's word Hebrews 12 18 to 24 the writer of the Hebrews writes this you have not come to it so he's talking about sort of when the the people received the the word of God right back the people of Israel received the word of God at Sinai and he says this you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them because they could not bear to hear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches a mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. So you've not come to that mountain, the writer of the Hebrews says, but you have come, he says, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. You have come to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You have come to Mount Zion. This is Mount Zion in chapter 14. This is a picture of heaven. Jesus in heaven. But there's more to this than the location. Okay? So, for those who have been here for the last few weeks, when we last saw Satan in Revelation, at the end, of, at the beginning of Revelation 13, 
he is standing on the shore of the sea. And now we see Jesus and his church standing on the solid rock. Okay, That's why it's Mount Zion. It's a mountain. Jesus and the church are standing solidly. Satan is standing on the shore of the sea. You're supposed to get the picture here. That's what it's doing. It's a picture to remind us that Satan's footing is far from shore whilst the church stands on solid ground. But there's something more important to take from verse 1 of Revelation 14. When we were here and we looked at Revelation 7, <coughs> I said that 144,000 is a complete number. I'm not going to explain that again, okay? If you want to know anything more about that, you can listen to the sermon on Revelation 7, right? Okay? 144,000 represents perfection. It represents completeness. This is not a literal number. It makes no sense when you read the context of this to be a literal number. And in, in Revelation 7, uh, just as one simple explanation, John heard the number, 144,000, and then this is what he says next. After this, I looked, so I heard, and then I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. So you can't even count these people. So you can count 144,000. But this is such a multitude that no one can count it. From every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne of, and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hand. So Revelation 14 is a picture of Jesus and his church complete. And you might think, well, why is the number even there? Well, it's there to represent perfection. There's an important lesson to learn in Revelation that we've seen over and over again. For those of you who are visiting, you don't have to worry about some of this, but I explained to the people who are from Calvary that Revelation is, a, is a, written as a chiasm. It's a, it's a grammatical way of writing. In, in, that people have used it for centuries, and the Greeks used it a lot. Shakespeare used it as well. So you have something in the middle, okay? And in the middle of Revelation is the, the last part of chapter 11, that's the important bit. That's the bit when Jesus returns, the last few verses of Revelation 11. And everything around it points to that. So Revelation 7 points to that. Revelation 14 points to that. In Revelation 7, we have Jesus and his church, 144,000. And then we have the trumpet judgments that fall upon the earth. So judgments from God upon the earth. Then we have a description of a war between Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet and the church. We have a description of this war that's gone on for 2,000 years. And then, importantly, we have Revelation 14. We have Jesus standing on Mount Zion with 144,000 people. That's not 129,600 which is 90% of 144,000. It's not even 143,999. What this is telling us is that every single person who starts on this journey with Jesus, who is truly born again, who is truly redeemed through faith in Jesus Christ, is still there after all the judgments, after the, the war and everything, they are there. Not one single person is lost. The church is complete. Matthew 18, 12, 14 says this. What do you think? 
If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happy about the one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. John 10, 27 to 29. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my, my hand. My Father who has given to me to them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So once we belong to Jesus, what this is trying to is telling us is a picture of once you belong to Jesus, you always belong to Jesus. Once you've been sealed by his spirit, nothing Satan can do, nothing the Antichrist can do, nothing the false prophet can do can prevent you being with Jesus eternally. Kevin Flett said, hallelujah. Praise God for that. If you know that as a Christian, that's the truth that you can't get away from. That's what Revelation is assuring God's people of in the first century, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, all the way up to the 21st century. There's no greater assurance that you can have in the world. Nothing. Doesn't matter what you have, there's no greater assurance than this. You're not assured of anything. No one had heard of COVID-19 two years ago, and it just goes to show us that we're not assured of anything in this world, let alone life. Okay? What you are assured of, once you're a Christian, is that you will go to heaven and be with Jesus. That is 100% guaranteed in God's word, which is exactly why we've just added the preservation of the saints to our statement of faith in this church. Jesus and his church complete. Secondly, a song of victory. So, verse 2 and 3 says, I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpers playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Now, we came to church this morning and we all sang, didn't we? All like... Uh, It's like, you know, it's pretty rubbish, really. But, you know, it's best we can do at the moment. But listen to this. I heard a sound from heaven, like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. This is the song of God's people. This is meant to be so uplifting. It's like a wall of noise coming towards you. This is what John heard. This wall of noise, of, of celebration, of praise to God from God's people. It's so uplifting. The mention of harps is, is there so to, to remind us that it's a song of melody and even tenderness. But even so, it's so uplifting and so loud and so mighty and powerful. This is God's church praising him. And it's a new song. We see this over and over in Revelation. A special song. Psalm 96 verse 1 to 3 says this, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Just declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among the peoples. A song of salvation, the psalmist writes. This is what the, the, the church had gathered together. One of the greatest things about Revelation for me, and I hope for you, I really hope this is for you, is that when I read this, right, I'm reading about myself. That's really exciting. I can't believe it. This is me. I'm there. Hey, it's great. David's on the harps. 
okay? But I'm there, and you're there if you love Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. So what we're reading about, we're singing this song. I'm singing this song. I don't know what this song is at the moment. But I know I'm going to know it because it tells me no one could learn the song except the 144,000 or the church who have been redeemed from the earth. So that's me, so I'm going to learn this song. You're going to learn this song. Anyone can sing Christian hymns today, can't they? Anybody. You know, you, at Christmas time, everyone sings Christ, Christmas, uh, Christian hymns. No one knows what they're singing. They have no idea what the words mean. But anyone can sing them. Even today, the false prophet comes up with songs about God. We know that. But only those who put their faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation will be able to sing this song. Going to church doesn't qualify you to sing this song. Reading your Bible doesn't qualify you to sing this song. Working for God doesn't qualify you to sing this song. The only way you can sing this song is by, by being redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ for the atonement of your sin. This is a song that God's people are going to learn together. It's great sometimes, you know, when we come here and, and you know, Nathan or David or the two Davids, you know, introduce new songs to us, you know, or Kev, you know, whatever. And it's, 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 it's difficult, isn't it? You know, it's like they know what they're doing and we all stand there saying, well, where does this fit in and trying to listen to it and trying to pick it up and so on. It can be hard to learn a new song. And yet sometimes thinking, oh, man, why are we learning a new song? Let's stick to the oldies, you know what I mean? But this new song, we want to learn, don't we? Who wants to learn the new song? Come on, come on. we're British, you'll be in the church. Put your hand up if you want to learn a new song in heaven. It's going to say, come on. This is it, isn't it? We want to learn this song. We can't wait to learn this song. And we're going to, because we're the church Complete if we know Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. From verse 4, John does add some characteristics of these people, okay? But this is not a full list of characteristics of being a Christian. This just reflects the context of what John has been writing. The first part of verse 4 is, is can uh, cause a lot of debate amongst theologians, as you can imagine, over the centuries. Those uh, who... These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. And people say, well, is John saying that the church is only made up of uh, men who are virgins? Because that what it, you know, that's what it sounds like. And this is where you have a problem with being, with, with, if you think Revelation is literal, this is where you have a problem. If it's literally 144,000 people, are you literally saying these 144,000 men who are virgins? This is symbolic for us. It's a picture of us, of the context of what we've already seen in Revelation. We saw in the seven letters that sexual immorality played a big part in the society, and it even drifted into the church. In the first century, in Revelation 2, verse 14, Jesus says this to the church, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. It was drifting into the church. Revelation 2, 20-22. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food, sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling 
so I'll cast her on a bed of suffering, and I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. This had infiltrated into the church sexual immorality. And in the next section of Revelation 14, we get the first mention of, of Babylon, which is a name that will keep, keep cropping up uh, from now. Babylon, again, is not literal. That empire had ceased 500 years earlier. It's symbolic for the enemies of God, those who are against God and his people. And in verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 8, we see more context. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. So we're not talking about virgins in the, when we're talking about these 144,000 who kept themselves pure. And we're not talking about men. We're talking about people who are morally pure. That's what we're talking about. This is, not, uh, this is about not giving in to the pagan world system. This is about keeping pure for Jesus Christ. We're coming up to a section when we see Jesus and his church married. A bride cannot be engaged to two people at the same time. To be involved in the wedding celebration, we have to be pure for Jesus. This is what this is building to. This is what we see in Revelation. Only the redeemed can make that claim. They are pure for Jesus because we have not given in to a pagan world system. We have not given Jesus up. This is emphasized in the fact where it says in the second part of chapter, uh, verse 4, they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. The desire of God's people is to be close to him. I'm not going to read the whole of uh, John 10, verses 1 to 11, but that's a bit where Jesus says that he's the gate and he's the shepherd. Um, I'll just read this bit where it says, um, the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. This is important. When he has brought, them, brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep Follow him because they know his voice. They will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. This is what it means to be a Christian. We've looked at this in this church over the past few weeks. Jesus said, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Watch out for the false prophets. And more importantly, in that context, he says this. When he's talking about the end of time, Jesus says, at, at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and before, perform great signs and wonders to deceive. Sorry, and perform great wonders and, uh, to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So what Jesus is saying is, if it was possible, they were trying to deceive the elect, but it's not possible. Why is it not possible? Because they only follow Jesus, they don't follow a stranger. That's what it means to be a Christian. The saints will not be deceived. They will not follow after the false prophet. They will follow Jesus through thick and thin. This is what Jesus is saying to the first century Christian. The Roman Empire wants to kill you. Don't give in. Follow Jesus. And also in verse 5, it says this about the, 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 the church. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Again, the context comes from chapters 12 and 13 and from Jesus. John 8, 44 says this. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, 
not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan is the dragon. He's seeking to deceive through different ways. He's seeking to, to deceive the world. He's seeking to deceive everybody. He wants to deceive even the, the elect, but he can't. But that's what he's trying to do. And, and John is saying to us, if you're truly a Christian, you'll carry on following Jesus. You'll always tell the truth about Jesus and his gospel. You'll never give in to the false prophet. You'll never tell lies about the Bible. To stand with Jesus at the end is all that matters. That's all that matters. And he's putting this into, into the context of what we've looked at over and over again. Because over and over again we see in God's word that just because we go to church, just because we sing the songs, doesn't mean to say that you're part of the church. You know have to know that you've been redeemed. Jesus himself said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. These are the people who are following Jesus. It's part of being a Christian. It's a characteristic of being a Christian. You follow Jesus. You follow his word. You learn the new song. You keep yourself pure. You don't defile yourself with the world. I will always stand before a congregation, always, and say that, you know, that you're saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. I'll always say that. But that has to be seen in people's lives. You can't just say that. You have to show it, just like John is saying here. James says in verse 14 of chapter 2, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? But someone will say, he says in verse 18, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. To be part of the church of Jesus Christ, we have to be redeemed. We have to give our, our lives to Jesus. We have to repent of our sin and come to the foot of the cross in repentance and faith. But we have to show that in how we live our lives. We have to keep on following him. Through thick and thin, that's what we have to do. It's hard in that we've seen this. Those of us at Calvary have seen this. In the first century, it was it. You said you were a Christian. They could kill you. Simple as that. It's still the same in the 21st century. In some parts of the world, it is still exactly the same. Still today, hundreds of Christians are being killed simply because they say, I'm a Christian. The assurance that they have, the assurance that the first century Christian have, to keep on going and to be an overcomer is the fact that we will be with Jesus at the end. Nothing can stop that. That's what it means to be part of the church of Jesus Christ. So, I'm going to finish, conclude. It's really important for me to say this morning, to ask the question, can you see yourself in this picture? Okay, This is a picture for you of the church complete, right? And I can see myself there. I know 100% that I am in this picture that John saw. That's me. I'm standing there singing this new song. Not as badly as I would do on this earth because I'll be perfect by then. But that's me. But can you see yourself in that picture? Will you be singing this song?
How have you been saved? Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Have you been purchased by God? They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed or purchased from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Do you know that for yourself? No amount of being good, no amount of being religious, no amount of even going to church will enable people to stand with Jesus at the last days. Only repenting of your sin, putting your faith in him, is what matters. People say all the time, you know, I want to go to heaven and I want my mum to go to heaven and I want my dad to go to heaven and, you know, and so on. And, and, and we see it over and over again. Everyone wants to go to heaven. Great. It's easy. You don't have to be good because none of us can be good enough to go to heaven. Thank goodness for that. I don't have to be good. I don't have to go around and, and, and do all these different things and, and so on. That's good because I'm not very good at doing anything. What do I have to do? I have to repent of my sin and put my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And believe in him, put my trust in him and follow him and show that through my life. If you want to be, this is a picture of heaven. It's great, fantastic. Can't wait to be there. Sooner it happens, the better as far as I'm concerned. You might think, oh, good man. Daniel's still here. He's thinking, man, I want to get married first. You know, crikey. Jane's dad's here, I think. Is that Jane's dad? Yes, yeah. I want to see my daughter get married. But in reality, I just can't wait to go. can't wait to go to the wedding, but, you know, but I can't wait to go to heaven. That's the reality of, of being a Christian. I want this to be, this is, you know, wonderful for me. But you'd only go, you'd only learn the song if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you're saved this morning, which most of you are, I know, Take these verses as a big encouragement. That's why they're here. That's why they're here at the beginning of chapter 14. Chapters 12 and 13, that war, man, it's hard. We've seen it the last three weeks, the battle that we're in. It's difficult. But this is the encouragement to put on the armor again, take up your sword, and to keep on fighting. We face, we live in a difficult world. We all know that. We're in an all-out war against the dark forces of Satan. If you don't know you're in an all-out war against the dark forces of Satan as a Christian, then you have got problems because you're in an all-out war. And that's why we're looking at Revelation, to understand that, that the Lamb wins. Okay? It's an all-out war. We've got to be overcomers. We don't have to fear the enemy or shrink away from the enemy. We don't have to be scared of what Satan can do or what the Antichrist can do what the false prophet can say. We don't have to be scared of those things at all. Because we are on the victory side. The lamb wins. End of story. And if the lamb wins, so do I. That's fantastic. And this is our reward. This is my reward. Your reward. Your inheritance that's coming to you. One day, Jesus and his church will be there, standing triumphant, and singing a new song.
And that is just a tremendous encouragement to keep on walking with Jesus and to keep on fighting for him. Let's pray as we close. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you. We thank you for today, Lord. I thank you again for the dedication of Mabel. Thank you for the family. Thank you for all that you seek to do in our lives, Lord. I pray, Lord, you be with us now as we just come to the, the end of this time, Lord. I pray, Lord, that as we chat, Lord, and just uh, perhaps talk about your word or talk about Mabel, Lord, that your, you would be in each and every conversation, Lord. We thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy, Lord. And most of all, we thank you for Jesus. You gave so that we could be with you eternally in heaven. And I pray, Lord, that you would just speak to our hearts and challenge our hearts today about whether we're in this picture or not. Is this a picture that we are in? Lord, if there's people here who don't know you as Lord and Savior, I pray, Lord, you speak to them about their need of salvation today. For the rest of us, Lord, who, who know this, may this be a great assurance to us that one day we'll stand with you in victory, Lord, and that we will be with you for eternity. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.